If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 2. It will be on the screen as we're going along, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Bible, phone, or you can just use the screen, that's fine. But So you guys have heard me talk about my kids a lot at this point. Isla, who is two, Jack, who is nine months old, and if you have not met them or seen them, I will just be completely biased right now. They are the cutest children on earth. It is absolutely true. And Jack has been just crazy fun and cute these last couple of weeks. So one thing that he's doing is he has this huge smile. So when you like see him, his face just like brightens up and he just has this like huge smile. But the hilarious thing is that he's teething and the only teeth he has up top are his fangs. So he like smiles and it's just this like vampire smile of like these fangs, he's like, you know, but it's so cute and adorable and I love it. And the other thing that is like even cuter is he's learned how to wave the last couple of weeks. And he like, so I like imagine I come home from work and he's in his spot and his spot is the middle of our living room. We just plop him there. He loves being there. So I walk in and every time he just gets like the biggest smile when I walk in, but then he's like the sloths off Zootopia and his hand just like slowly, like, you know, he's sitting there and his hand just slowly comes up and then he just starts twisting it and moving his fingers and he's just smiling at me and he's just like and I'm like Jack you're awesome buddy I just love it but what's even better is when I'm holding Jack so I like hold Jack and if you were to come up to him and be like hey Jack how's it going buddy this is what he's done every time the last like three weeks he will immediately look at you and smile and then bury his head into my shoulder and then he'll open up like one eye and kind of look back at you and then reach his hand out and go. <laughs> and it just melts my heart and everybody else's heart. And I just love him so much. And it's, it, so not only is he adorable, but he's also a stud. So Isla will just come like barreling through the room, just sprinting. And she'll see Jack plopped in the center of the living room. And she'll just come in, she'll boom, and push him over. And we would stop her. But every time she does it, Jack falls over and then just dies laughing. It's, he's just like, ah! Nice try, Isla. You know, a nine-month-old can't talk, but that's what he does. And so Isla just comes through and just pushes him, and it's hilarious because he's just dying laughing. And I don't know if he's going to get hurt one of these times or not, but he's a tough little dude that's also adorable. So he's just melting our hearts and brings us so much delight. But the crazy thing is, so the first nine days of Jack's life were actually incredibly difficult. So back, he was born on April 30th, and I shared a little bit of this last semester, but he was born April 30th, and Natalie and I show up to the hospital. She had a, a scheduled C-section, so it was planned that we'd have him at like nine in the morning that morning. So we show up, we're, we're super excited, just filled with anticipation. We cannot wait to meet our son. And we go through all the preliminary stuff. They get Natalie prepped for surgery. Then they move us into the operating room. And it's crazy. C-sections actually go pretty fast. So we're sitting there and, you know, pretty quickly Jack is delivered. And so the nurses are telling me to like take pictures and stuff. And, and we just have this baby boy, this baby that is now ours. And, and they like show him to us. And they're like, it's a boy. And they, they like cut the cord, bring him over. And they like will rest him on Natalie's like shoulder. And I'm like there. And we're just having this incredible, incredible moment where like we're just excited, filled with joy about our son, taking pictures. So then after they do that, they, the next step is they take him over to this crib. And for like 10 minutes or so, they'll like do checkups to make sure that they're doing good. They're, they're transitioning out of the womb all right and everything. So they do the, these checkups. And, 
And with Isla, that like portion took about 10 minutes. And after about 10 minutes, they brought Isla over to me and I got a got to hold her and stuff. So we're sitting there like waiting to, for Jack to come over and we hit like the 10 minute mark. And I'm thinking like, all right, so this is, this is about when I should be getting Jack and I'll get to hold him for about the rest of the, the procedure. And the nurse just kind of nonchalantly says, hey, Jack isn't like transitioning super well. I'm just going to hold him here for a little bit longer. And, and he's doing okay though. And so then the 20 minute mark hits and she says something similar. Then the 30 minute mark hits. She says something similar again. And then the 40 minute mark hits. And these 40 minutes like, you know, go by in 60 seconds, it feels like. And so at this point, the 40 minute mark, Natalie's operation is pretty much done. And these two specialists, pediatric specialists come in and they start, you know, assessing Jack. And I come over there and they say, hey, so here's the deal we think Jack is okay. Some babies just take longer to transition out of the womb into the real world. So all Jack needs right now is a little bit of oxygen and a little bit of time, and he's going to be okay. So we're just giving him some time, some space, some oxygen. He probably has some fluid in his lungs. He just needs to clear, um, but he's going to be okay. So Natalie gets taken back to her room. I'm with Jack waiting, you know, and the whole time I'm taking pictures of him still. Like, it's super fun. We're just like kind of waiting for this, like, okay, there's a little bit of a problem, but Sounds like it's going to get cleared up pretty quickly. After about two hours of waiting for, for Jack to settle down, they're like, hey, you know what? I think we need to take him to the intensive care unit to just, it'll probably be three hours, be over there. He'll transition, then he'll come down to your room. So I'm like, great. They transition him to like this transportation crib. A transportation nurse comes and my, the nurse, myself, and Jack are like walking to the NICU. And as we're walking about halfway through, Jack just like plummets. So that your blood oxygen level should be at 100, and Jack just like starts getting down, 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 down. He's like at 40 or 30, and so he's plummeting. So the, the transportation nurse starts, you know, scrambling to help him stabilize, and as soon as she gets him stabilized, she is just like rushing to the NICU. And my heart is just, you know, like, what is going on? So we're going to the NICU. I walk in, there's like seven nurses and doctors like waiting to receive us and, and Jack. They get him set up. They're, they're like handing me stuff, and I'm just like, what is going on? Like... And so at one point, I'm just like overwhelmed, haven't seen Natalie for like three hours. So I go down to talk, to, just be with Natalie. The doctor comes and tells us like, hey, Jack, like for whatever reason, is just taking longer. Again, he's going to be okay. He just needs more oxygen. He just needs more time. He'll probably like sleep one night in the NICU so we can monitor him. And then tomorrow he'll be down here and it'll be okay. So from that point and over the next three days, Jack just continued to spiral downward and downward and downward. So every, like day one got worse, day two got even worse, day three even worse. And, and he, every time he just needed more assistance and all of this to eventually on Thursday, the third day we were there, the, nurse, the doctor came and said, hey, we've determined that Jack has pneumonia. And when you have like, you know, a super small, I don't know if you've ever held like a day old baby, like that is a scary thing. So he has pneumonia and, and she's explaining like, hey, here's what we need to do. It's not just going to be a little bit of oxygen. It's not just a little bit of time. He needs like a full antibiotic treatment. He needs to be under 24-hour surveillance with a nurse. The antibiotics will take a week. And then you guys need to be prepared to be here for a long time. And we're like, well, how long is a long time? And she's like, I can't tell you. Just be prepared to be here for a very long time after the antibiotics. And so Natalie and I, like the, the seriousness of this situation is beginning to hit us. 
And so we get the news. I go up, and I'm hanging out with Jack, just like looking at him. And he has, you know, all these tubes and monitors and everything, a, a breathing tube going all the way down to his lungs. And just the, the severity of the situation is beginning to hit me. And what had happened, you know, is like we showed up to the hospital in full anticipation of Jack coming. And, and initially, when they tell us that there's a problem, we just think, okay, like a little bit of oxygen, a little bit of time, it will be fine. But what happened was we had, we and the nurses and staff had severely underestimated the significance and seriousness of the situation. And, and it, pretty quickly, we were t experiencing the worst event of our lives, where we were just in this absolutely desperate place for God to heal our son. So the antibiotics started kicking in, and over the course of the next seven days, Jack began to really turn around. So we come in like on Monday, and he starts to really turn around, and things are starting to look good, and, and he's starting to, you know, eat and all of this. And so by Wednesday, you know, we get the incredible news like, okay, your son is healed, and you can take him home. And we are just, you know, celebrating. Natalie and I are so excited because we have just gone through the worst event of our life, this, this incredibly significant, serious situation. And now Jack is healed. And we're just amazed to the point where we're like going to Starbucks and buying like gift cards for all the nurses and staff that helped him. And like we are loading little Jack up. We take him like, I'm like, Natalie, we got to get ice cream. So we, we're getting ice cream to celebrate. And like, it's just awesome. We've got him home. And like, we had this like incredible response of joy and gratitude because we had finally realized the severity of the situation that we were in. But all the way back at the beginning, when in the initial moments, when we saw that initial problem, we just thought he needed a little bit of oxygen and a little bit of time to be okay. But we had severely underestimated the seriousness of the situation. Tonight, we're going to look at a passage that is, is really a bedrock passage of the Christian faith. It's one of the most important texts in our entire Bible that explains the message of Christianity. And what's going to happen is we're going to see some incredible truths, just things that are going to blow our minds and fill us with joy. But before we get to see and look at those incredible truths, this passage is going to first confront us. And what it's going to confront us on is this, that most of us have significantly underestimated the severity of our situation. Most of us in this room have significantly underestimated the depth of our sin before God. And what we're going to see is that until we understand the depth of our sin, we cannot understand the beauty of God's grace. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through this passage and see what our situation is, <coughs> what the solution is, and then how we respond to that. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, let's look at this. Here's what he says in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So what's our situation? He says it right away. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are dead in, the in your trespasses and sins. How do we get here? Well, he lists a couple things right off the bat. He says, uh, you once lived according to the ways of the world. 
Guys, there, there's a, when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about the negative influences that distort our values and our desires. Like, think about why you care about so, why do you care so much about attractiveness, money, and a job title? Well, those are things that the world cares about. And the reality that he's saying is that there is this negative influence that the world has that distorts us. But not just the world, he also says in verse two, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. So how do we get into this situation? Not just the influence of the world, but also the reality of an evil spiritual realm that is all around us. The Bible says that there's both good angels and evil angels, and there are evil angels influencing us to entice us into sin and to disobedience to God. But then he gives us the ultimate reason why we find ourselves dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Has the world influenced us? Yes. Has spiritual, uh, the spiritual realm influenced us? Yes. But take those away. And ultimately at the end of the day, how did we find ourselves dead in our trespasses? It was because all have previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Guys, when the Bible talks about our flesh, it talks about that aspect of who we are that desires and wants all things that are opposed to God. And what he's saying is that all of us have gratified and carried out the inclinations of our flesh. Each of us have things that have this nature, this fleshly nature that desires what's contrary to God. And all of us at one point or another has gratified that and carried that inclination out. And so not only that, but we were also by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So each of us have given into this fleshly nature, but we are also people who desire what is contrary to God. And guys, when I read a passage like this, here's what it does. For me, it stops me in my tracks. Because when I read a sentence that says all of us have given into the inclinations of our flesh, what happens for me is I immediately have flashbacks. Um, I immediately have flashbacks back to college and high school and moments in my life where I just wish I could take my decision back. You know, I have just the horrific moments in my life where I'm so ashamed of that I can remember fully carrying out the inclinations of my flesh. And there are things that mortify me that I don't even, not only do I want, not want to talk about them, I don't even want to think about them because I feel so much shame and guilt for those, those moments in my life where I've carried out the inclinations of my flesh. And it wasn't just college, it wasn't just high school. Even now, it's like, man, in my life now, there's times where I'm pulled and enticed to sin and I totally give in. And I totally want what is contrary to God. And, I, and there's just these moments that I'm mortified of. I mean, think about your life. Like if your life was, you know, thrown up on the screen, where are those moments that you would just be absolutely mortified as this room got to witness what you've done? And maybe, you know, he says the thoughts, maybe like there's a transcript of what's going on in your mind. Like what are those thoughts that you're just like, oh my gosh, like has anyone ever had that thought go through their mind? That was so vile and so wicked and so perverse. Like where'd that even come from? 
or maybe you even dwelled on it. And you're like, oh, like, I want that. But, and there's just these inclinations that desire sin. Like, when are those moments? And here's the thing, that video, throwing that up there would be uncomfortable for every single person in this room. That's what he says. He says, all, all, all. There's no one in here who does not fall under that all. All previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. All have carried out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We all have those moments where we just wish we could take that thought, that decision, that behavior, that attitude back. And here's what I think happens at this point. Here's where I think we go wrong. We, we, we would agree like, man, okay, yeah, I agree. Like there's totally moments in my life that I'm not perfect, that I'm not good. I didn't make the right decision. I had a bad attitude, whatever. But you just said all of us do that. And look, it's not like it's my whole life. Doesn't God like kind of take that into account? And when he looks at my life, he would see that most of my life was pretty good. And I can for sure think of people that have done worse things than me that should be more, more mortified if the screen were to be up there. Like, like, shouldn't God take that into account? Like, I, I can't be that bad. Like, my life is mostly good. Yes, I've made mistakes, but no one's perfect, so sh God should just accept me, right? Guys, here's what happens when that is the, 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 tr the thing that we think is true. What we're thinking and what that, tr what that sentence reveals is that we have significantly underestimated the, the severity of the position that we're in before God. That we've significantly underestimated what our sin is before God. Guys, there is a holy God who created you for a relationship with him. In love, he created you and desired a relationship with you. And, he, and what he wants from you is that you would love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your being. Why? Because that is, in God, there is a fullness of joy and, and happiness and satisfaction. And he desires that relationship, that intimate relationship with you. But all of us, as we have followed the inclinations of our fleshly desires, have rejected that relationship with God. And when we say, shouldn't God just be okay with a few mistakes, but take into account my whole life, what we're revealing is that we have severely underestimated our situation, the seriousness of our situation before God. And it shows that in the, in the hospital room, we just think that we need a little oxygen and that's going to heal us. A little time to clean up our stuff, to clear the fluid in our lungs, and that's going to heal us. But we don't realize that there is a disease that has brought death. As our trespasses, our sins, our rejection of God has brought death. Think of it this way. Um, I was at a retreat and I heard a pastor say this analogy. He said, hey, if it was my wedding night and, you know, like we go through, there's, for Natalie and I, we had these like long sparklers that lasted for five minutes. It was ridiculous and hilarious because we left and nobody knew what to do with these and they had to wait for five minutes. So they're like holding these sparklers and, you know, or you have bubbles and you, you, you know, I'm coming with my bride. We get to the limo that's going to take us away. And I'm like, oh, like, let's go. And I open the back door of the limo 
And let's say my bride, you know, is like crawling in and she looks up as she's coming in and to her utter shock and amazement are all of my ex-girlfriends sitting in the limo. And she looks at me and she's like, what's going on? Oh, babe. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. You have to know that I love you so much and I love you more than anyone. And I want to give you the majority of my time, the majority of my life, but I still like them and I still want to spend some time with them and I want to keep them around. You cool with that? It's not that big of a deal, right? Like a little bit isn't that big of a deal, right? She say, it is a big deal. You have significantly underestimated how big of a deal it is. Guys, God does not want to be the bride in the backseat of a limo with all your ex-girlfriends. Okay, let me say it again now. He doesn't want that. He wants your exclusive affection. He wants your exclusive devotion. He wants your exclusive love. He wants your exclusive worship. He doesn't want to share a limo with all the other things you hope will bring you satisfaction. And here's what happens when we give in to the inclinations of our flesh. When we give in and gratify that that sinful desire, what we're saying in that moment is, God, I love you. But in this moment, I love sin more. Because God created you for a relationship with him. And he wants you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the same way a bride would have no part of that relationship, there is a severity to our sin as people who have followed the inclinations of our sinful desires, rejecting the loving relationship God wants with us. And here's why that is the biggest problem in the world for you. It's because of verse, the end of verse three, it says that we are children under wrath. As God created you for a relationship with him, but when we rejected him following the inclinations of our flesh, that incurred guilt. And that guilt deserves God's wrath. Have you grasped the seriousness of your sin before a holy God? Have you grasped the severity of your situation? So then the biggest problem, you know, that we have to answer then is how, how do people who have a really hard time loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength have a relationship with God? Because when I look at my life, you know, there's a lot of other things in the backseat of the limo. And I fail at this all the time. And I, I have tons of moments that flash into my mind when I've given into the inclinations of my flesh. How do we, people who are dead in our sins, and under the wrath of God, have hope. How can we be restored into a relationship with God? Because at a retreat my freshman year, I heard another uh, story. And Mark Vance, who's one of the speakers at the SALT conference, he told the story of Hosea. So Hosea was a guy in the Bible who was really an upstanding guy. 
He was, you know, in his town. Everyone knew him. He was high character, high morals, high integrity. People loved him. He, he loved God. He worshiped. And he was just awesome. And one day God comes to Hosea and he says, hey, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. Now, here's why that is crazy. Gomer was the town prostitute. Everyone also knew her. And she was promiscuous. She was despised. She was trash. She was garbage. And nobody, especially Hosea, would ever have thought that Hosea would marry Gomer. But Hosea obeys and he marries Gomer. And so Hosea and Gomer, they have this wedding, they get married, and then sooner or later they have a kid. And now like they name their kids weird names. So they have their first child together and they name his name Jezreel. Jezreel was this location of a massacre. So it'd be like naming your first kid the, the location of a like mass shooting. Very bizarre and very shocking. So they have this, this kid together. Now the next two kids that come, something interesting in the story happens. The first kid, it says, Gomer and Hosea have a kid together. Then it just says, Gomer got pregnant. So Gomer gets pregnant with kid number two, and it's pretty obvious that it's not with Hosea. And she has this girl. And Hosea being the upstanding man of integrity that, man of integrity that he is, he, he welcomes this girl in. He says, okay, I'll adopt you. I have no idea who or where your dad is. I'll adopt you as my own. And he loves this girl. And again, they give her a crazy name. They name her No Compassion. But they, you know, they have this girl. Then a third child. And again, it says Gomer got pregnant. Not with Hosea, Gomer got pregnant. And it's a boy. And Hosea does the exact same thing. He's like, okay, I'll take him in. I, I'll be his father. I'll be his dad. He brings in the third kid. They name, name him Not My People. So then after the third kid, Gomer up and leaves. She leaves Hosea with, with these three kids and Gomer begins to just live this life of promiscuity, chasing lover after lover after lover. All the while, Hosea is left completely alone. Completely alone. I mean, he, he's, you know, changing diapers by himself. He's packing school lunches by himself. He's a single dad. He's sending kids off to school. And I, you know, I'm like, when I put Isla down to, for bed, it's like maybe Hosea is like putting no compassion down and, and no compassion is like looking up and saying, dad, where's mom? Because Hosea and the kids have no idea. No idea. Why? Because Gomer is just going after lover after lover, just prostituting herself. And this goes on for, for years. Hosea and the kids have no idea where Gomer is. Gomer is off. Every once in a while, Hosea would, would hear where she was at and he would create these gift baskets for her. Maybe this will be the thing that draws her back to me. And he would he'd put, you know, bread and oils and, and gifts and shampoos in there. And he'd take them, sneak there early in the morning and set them there. And Gomer would wake up and she'd find this gift and she'd just assume that it was from her lover from the night before. And this happens for years. Gomer just goes from, from lover to lover, all the while Hosea is left completely alone with these kids, caring for them, loving them. Every once in a while hearing where Gomer's at and going and taking these gifts. Well, sooner or later, Gomer is completely spent. After years of prostituting herself, she, she is tattered and, and feeble and weak. All of her beauty is gone. And she finds herself in this really dire place. No one will even hire her as a prostitute. So she has an idea. I think this is the one option I have left. So she goes into town. She goes to the slave market and she says, hey, I, I think I need to sell myself into slavery. And the, you know, the auctioneer takes a look at her and he's like, eh, okay. 
So she, she hands herself over and this auctioneer calls out into the city. He says, who would take Gomer? Who will buy Gomer the prostitute? And like, there's probably just this crowd and, and everyone's silent because they all know who she is. And you just get this, this woman up there who's is frail and feeble. Her, her clothes are like rags and dangling. And the crowd's silent because they're like, I don't want her even in my house. And the auctioneer, he tries again. He's like, who will buy Gomer? Who wants Gomer? And all of a sudden this voice speaks up. And someone from the back says, I'll buy Gomer. And you know, and the auctioneer's like, what? Like, I'll buy Gomer. And, and the crowd like splits. And standing there in the back is Hosea. The guy who had spent countless nights alone the guy who had sent kids on their first day of school year after year by himself, the guy who had to awkwardly answer where these kids' mom is, the guy who was devastated by the unfaithfulness of his wife, the guy who was, was faithful and brought gifts, but those gifts, she thought they were from someone else. And there's Hosea. And Hosea walks up and he looks at his wife, who is hardly recognizable at this point. And he looks her in the eyes, which, you know, they're just like hollow eyes. And he just says, Gomer, I will buy you. And I will bring you home with me to live with me for many days. And Gomer, you'll belong to me and I will belong to you. And so Hosea gives the auctioneer 15 silver coins. He, he you know, probably lifts Gomer up. He takes her home, bathes her, cleans her clothes, gives her new clothes, puts her in a bed, nourishes her, makes her chicken noodle soup, just takes care of her and restores her out of love and delight. And then the story shifts right there. And God says, hey, Hosea, the reason why I took you through all of this was that so people would have a picture of my faithful love to them, despite their unfaithfulness to me. Because there is a God who loves you, who created you for a relationship with himself. But we have rejected him. And like Gomer, we are in a broken and dire place. And in that broken and dire place, God looked at us with a heart of compassion and love and said, I will purchase them. And God purchased us, but not with 15 silver coins, but with the blood of his son. And he comes to you and he says, I want a relationship with you. Come home with me. Live with me for many days and I will be your God and you will be my people. And guys, this is where the incredible part of our passage begins. Look at verse four. There's a God, and it says, but God. In the midst of our severe position, it says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. People who were in a broken, tattered place that were desperate, people who had been unfaithful to him, who had pursued all of these other things in the back of the limo. He had a great love that he had for us. And what did he do? Verse five, he made us alive with Christ. 
You were once dead in your trespasses, but have now been made alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. Guys, what could have Gomer done in that moment to convince Hosea that he should take her back? Nothing. What brought her back? Total, sheer grace. In verse six, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. God has brought you home. You who have rebelled and abandoned him, he has brought you home and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. To live with him for many days, to belong to him and to have God belong to us. Why? Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. As you want to know why you're indifferent towards grace? Because most of us are indifferent towards sin. And most of us are indifferent towards our brokenness before God. But do you want to be wowed by the grace and love, the, the rich mercy and the great love that God has for us? You want to be wowed by the immeasurable riches of his grace? Then understand and comprehend the severity of your position before God because of your sin. You were once dead in your sins and under the wrath of God, but God in our most broken moment looked at us with compassion and love and sacrificed his son so that you could be brought home and restored to live with God many days, to belong to him, and for us to have a deep appreciation and awe at his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us. And then verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Guys, if, if you owe someone a hundred bucks, you could probably get that back to them in a day. You know, 10 hours at 10 bucks an hour, you could get that, that back to them in a day. If your kid just has a little bit of fluid in his lungs, then he just needs a, a little oxygen and a little time and he's gonna be good. But if your kid has pneumonia, you need something more. And if you owe not a hundred bucks, but a hundred trillion bucks, then you need more than a day job because there is a debt that you have that you cannot hope to pay. That's our situation. A $100 trillion debt against God because of our rejection of him. And God in his great love to us paid that debt by sacrificing Jesus for us. And, and look, there is no amount of good works. There's no amount of cleaning up our act that can make us worthy of God's grace. It is sheer grace received by faith. What did Gomer do when Hosea came up and said, I want you to come home with me? How much did she clean up her life? Not at all. Why? Because Hosea came to her in her brokenness and said, I will bring you home and I will pay the price in full for your salvation. Because Jesus Christ paid the price for our salvation in full when we were in the most dire moment of our existence. And therefore we are saved by grace through faith. It's God's gift. And it's not by works. There's no way we could pay the debt that we have against God. And we don't receive grace and there's not, you know, we don't have to complete it. We don't have to maintain it. It is all, all of our salvation rests on what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
Guys, the, the beauty of grace, the amazingness of grace will never hit you until you understand the severity of your situation before God. But once you do, it will completely transform your life. So the last question is, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this solution? Look back at verse eight through 10. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. There's two responses. The first is God calls this a gift. His grace is an absolute gift. Have you received it? Have you acknowledged the depth of your sin before God and seen with clarity what Jesus did to save us from that sin and respond with faith and receive grace? Here's the second response, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Look, our behavior, our good works don't earn us our salvation, but people who have been staggered by God's sheer grace given to us, your life will be transformed. Do you think Gomer could ever be the same woman after she experienced the grace that Hosea extended? I don't think she could. How could you? Because people who have been shown immeasurable grace in a dire moment of their life are completely changed. And guys, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. When you understand the reality of God's grace and the reality of your brokenness and, and the kindness that God has shown to us, it will change your life. And it will produce joy and gratitude and wonder and awe at Jesus. And you'll just want to obey. You'll want to follow him. You'll want to know the God that saved you. You'll want to walk in obedience and it will completely transform your life into somebody who is his workmanship created for good works. It will com get, completely give you a new purpose. Guys, the question then, the, then is, if we're going to see the beauty of grace, have you seen the depth of sin? Are you somebody that just thinks you need an oxygen mask to, to get you a little bit you know, through this transition period? Are you somebody that just thinks that you need like three hours in a NICU to, to be healed? Or are you somebody that has recognized the reality that in our sin, we are dead? And because of that, we are under wrath, but that there is a God who is rich in mercy, that his, his grace and kindness have been displayed to us through Jesus. And that there is a grace and salvation being offered to you that is received just through faith. Because when you do, it will completely transform your life. Let's pray.